So if we can, we're going to open up to the 20th chapter of the book of Matthew. Finished out chapter 19 last time. And, you know, we were <clears throat> focusing last time on the last section of chapter 19 in Jesus' response to the rich young ruler and his follow-up teaching to uh, his disciples. Now, if you remember, when the rich young ruler finished his conversation with Jesus, he went away sorrowful, and we discussed why that was. He was looking to Jesus for that one more works-based thing he could do to hopefully give himself the assurance, the peace, the salvation that he so desperately sought. And when Jesus said, well, you buddy, you need to sell all you have and come follow me, and he said, well, I'm not willing to do that, he went away sorrowful, sorrowing in the fact that he thought he had missed his chance. Well, then Jesus continues to talk with his disciples, and his disciples discuss with him about the issue of riches. But more so, they discuss with him, if you look at the context, and I guess you could say the subtext of what's going on with it, they're asking him, well, but what are we going to get? Because we have done that, okay? What are we going to get? They're still in this mindset. We, we hash this all out in chapter 17 and chapter 18. They're still coming back around to it. Yes, I understand, but what are we going to get? Look what we have done. What are we going to get? It's almost if they missed the entire conversation that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. He's talking to the rich young ruler and he's saying, Man, look, there is a simplicity in this. Leave all that other stuff that's trapping you and just come and follow me. You're going to have riches in heaven. You're going to have peace. You're going to have assurance. Man wasn't willing to do that, so he went away sorrowful. Jesus turns around his disciples to kind of follow up on that like, Guys, man, did you see what just happened? How hard it is for those to enter into the kingdom of heaven who trust in riches. And they're like, uh, okay. So you're saying that we don't need money or you saying we do need, but we gave everything that we had up, Jesus. We gave up our prosperous jobs. We gave up our status. We gave up everything that we had for you. So, so what are we going to get? It's as if they missed the whole teaching, which is then why Jesus goes in to talk about the next parable. Chapter 19, chapter 20, just like 17 and 18. Remember, when we started this, we started back with the last few verses of chapter 17 saying that was the setup. That was the ball on the tee, okay, before we got into this whole teaching through 19 and 18, okay? It started off with that question of offense, and then it got into, yeah, but who's going to be the greatest? And then it went back to, y'all need to get on the same page as me. And then it went back into chapter 19 with discussing about who, where the source of goodness comes and who we're really following and what does it really mean to be a disciple and, and all these things that line up. Well, it continues right on to chapter 20. He starts off in chapter 20 with what's called the parable of the householder or the vineyard owner or the landowner. In this parable, he's not drawing out another teaching he's following up on the previous teaching that's why he starts it off with for the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder he goes into this teaching to expand on what he's trying to get across to his disciples remember the parables were enigmatic they were purposefully coded they were meant, he's told us a few chapters back, I'm speaking in parables for you to know these mysteries and not everybody else. So he's purposefully doing this. So he's been teaching to them in parables over and over again. And they weren't just good stories, even though they are pretty good, all right? 
And they do get the point across in most cases. Some of them you do have to kind of decipher and go, okay, we got some fish in a net and we got some birds in a tree and all this stuff. And what are you talking about? Here he's going to be, I mean, it's very, this is, this teaching, this parable is self-explanatory. Okay. In many ways. Now there is, again, there is some subtext to it. There are some themes that begin with this parable that have been echoed in other parables and in other in other accounts by Luke and Mark, there will be other mentions of this kind of first and last scenario. But, um, you know, Jesus' statement here is going to be very surface level. There is a teaching that he is trying to get across to his disciples. And then there's going to be some deeper things underneath that. This whole chapter, though, centers around four different stories. Just like we talked about 19 and 18, they kind of they hit on these different stories. At least 19 did. 20 kind of hits on some different stories, too. But again, we... We want to make sure we are not separating these things too far out, okay? These chapters, a lot of times, are not just like diary entries, okay? All right? March 30th, Jesus talks about the parable. March 31st, I decided to tell him I'm going to die again. March or April 1st, we were getting confused about what Sunday it was when we were driving over. I was like, haven't we entered into April already? Um, isn't it April Fool? I don't know. So here he's kind of giving not a chronological Okay, this is my dates in my book, in my entries, in my diary. These are stories that just so happen, you know, to tie back to a meta-narrative, a bigger theme. Okay? So as he starts off, and, and what we'll see in, these, in this chapter, we see four different stories. One's the parable of the landowner. One is the third announcement of Christ's death. This is this kind of final announcement to his disciples of his death. We've already looked at the previous two. We talked about how weird it is, but also... Very, very necessary that he had to, on more than one occasion, announce to his disciples, guys, we're going to Jerusalem and I am going to die. Okay, Again, that should have been one thing that maybe you could have just gotten on the first time. But he has to tell them three times. Just like, unfortunately, we have to tell our kids more than once. Okay, And there are times that we will say to our kids, either you or I are going to die in this moment. Like, that's just how this is going to go. But the third story that he talks about is what I call kind of the rights of honor. And that's looking at when a good old mama goes and tries to lobby for her sons. You would think, again, that that is a separate story. But remember, we've been talking about this whole chapter in chapter 19, especially the end of chapter 19. I've given up something. Where am I going to sit in honor? I've given up something. What am I going to get in return? So mama going up there to lobby for the, her sons, the sons of Zebedee, lobbying for a position on one of these thrones that he's already told them that they're going to get to sit in judgment on. Well, we want the one that's closest to you. Okay, don't put us down at the end. We want the one that's right on your right hand side. And how about this? You sit in the middle and we'll split the difference. We don't have to. We're not picky. You know, we get 12 thrones, man. Well, just as long as we're sitting in close proximity to you so that, oh, by the way, people can see that you are our favorite and you know they can see that we are your favorite so that story in and of itself is not separate from this it's all the same theme christ's death announcement for the third time actually does tie back into this scenario as well and we're going to look at that and lastly you look at the healing of the two blind men again that story even though it seems like it's separated it seems like it's a little bit far off kind of out of text it actually it matches back up with everything that's going to be taught in this chapter. So the big themes before we dive in that we look at with this, there's two big themes that I've kind of identified out of this chapter. The first one, and you got to kind of hear this maybe more than once, but the first one is the theme that you will see recurring through this, especially in this first section and tying into chapter 19, 
is the one or the person who thinks he deserves more versus the one who knowingly deserves less but receives infinitely more. So the first theme is the one who thinks he deserves more based on whatever he's done, whatever he's achieved, whatever he's sacrificed versus the one who knowingly, maybe not to himself initially, but definitely to everybody else, knows you don't deserve a thing but ends up receiving infinitely more. So that's the first one. And that ties in with the Luke 15, what we look at with the prodigal of the, I mean, the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, that's what that theme is in the parable of the prodigal son. You have the one who thinks he deserves more, the faithful son who remains and does not go out and squander his inheritance. And we all look at him and we talk about him and we talk about the prodigal son who returns and ends up receiving infinitely more than he deserves when everybody at the table knows he doesn't deserve anything. He's taken everything, he's squandered everything, and he even in the end realizes he doesn't deserve anything as well. That's why when he comes back to his father, he says, just let me be a servant in your house. I don't deserve to be elevated. Of course, that's not what the father does. But you see the theme in that story. The one who thinks he deserves more, the faithful son who comes up at the end and says, but daddy, haven't I always been with you? Where's my fatted calf? Where's my party with my buddies? You haven't done that for me. Versus the prodigal son who comes back and deserves nothing yet receives infinitely more. So you have that as a big theme going through chapter 20. The idea, this prevalent idea of we who have done this should deserve more. And this is addressed at his apostles. Okay. He's teaching his apostles, his disciples. I know I just told you. That you're going to sit on 12 thrones and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And you're going to receive in this world a hundredfold what you've ever given up. And in the end, you're going to receive eternal life. I know I've told you all that and you're going to take that. And unfortunately, you're going to run with that and go, yeah, look at us. Look, because we gave up so much, look at what we're going to get out of all this. Well, that's a very prideful, selfish and unintentional consequence of what Jesus was teaching. Okay? That's not what Jesus was presenting to them. Secondly, you have a theme of equality. All right? There'll be a theme of equality that runs through this chapter as well. The kingdom, within the kingdom of heaven, there is equality. Okay? That's going to be a theme, and it'll come up in other places too, and we'll kind of look at that. But there is a theme of equality within the kingdom of heaven. There is no one greater than another. If you want to be the greatest, you become the servant. If you want to be elevated, you humble yourself down. There's this reversed order equality going on. doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what your background is, male, female, black, white, Asian, whatever it may be, there is an equality within the kingdom of heaven. We are all one, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one, one, one. We're equal in that way. Okay, So there's a big theme of equality that runs through it all. No hierarchy. We've already kind of addressed that in chapter 18. You want to know who's the greatest? I'll show you who the greatest is. The greatest servant amongst you is the greatest. The lowliest of mind is the greatest. The humblest spirit is the greatest. You want to see who Jesus, 
who Jesus glorifies, who Jesus, you know, elevates within his kingdom. It's going to be the one who's not coming into it going, well, where's our thrones? And then which side are we going to sit on? And, and what are we going to receive for how much we've given up? What are we going to get out of this deal? Jesus, who is going to be the greatest in your kingdom? That's the one that's taken the back seat. That's the one Jesus is going to look at and say, you need to, you just need to sit over there. The greatest servant. Because here's the reality. And I think we would all agree with this and believe this this morning. Within the kingdom of heaven, within this world, we are all equally deserving of hell. Okay? There's equality in that. There is 100% statistical equality in every single one of us equally deserving hell. Right? Equal. Across the board. There is no one out there that we can look at and go, well... You're a little less deserving of hell than others. I mean, you're a pretty good guy. You dress up really good. You clean up really nicely. And I know y'all are thinking about that about me. But, you know, just to break that bubble and, you know, let that dispel that myth. We are all equally deserving of hell. Equal. We're equal in that. Equality. And within the kingdom of heaven, we all have been equally granted grace and deliverance. Irrespective of our circumstances, abilities, and means. So in the same way that we were equally deserving of hell, we are equally granted grace. And there's no difference in that. No one comes into it going, yeah, but, but God's grace to me, me is because I have so much to offer. God graciously saved me because, I mean, look at me. Look at me. Don't you think he wants me on his team? Look what I bring to the table. And I'm sorry, you don't bring as much to the table as I do. Look how much I have given up for the kingdom of heaven. What have you given up? Not as much as me. Look how long I've been doing this compared to you. You just came on board. You need to go to the back of the line. I deserve preference. I deserve the first place. I deserve one of those 12 thrones. I deserve more. Why? Well, because I'm so good, because I'm so awesome, because I have so much to bring to the table, because of my facilities, because of our faculties, because of my ability to do more than you, because of my giftings in this way or the other. These are all the debates and arguments that were hashed out at the church at Ephesus, at the church at Galatia, at the church at Corinth. At the ch- I mean, over and over again, you had these people coming up going, yeah, but look at my gift. God obviously prefers me more than you. Look at my gift. Look what I can do. I can prophesy. What can you do? Speak in tongues? Good for you. I can prophesy, though. Look at you. You can heal? Well, that's great. But look what I can do. And that's why in all of those cases, Paul and others had to write to the church and be like, guys, you understand that you're all part of the same body. Like, granted, maybe you are the left eye, but guess what? You need the right one or you got... What's the word? Diplopia. I love that word, by the the way. You know, you got the cross eyed. You got the singleness of vision. You can't see right. You got to have both eyes. Have you ever tried to look just with one? You miss all this stuff over here. Okay, you need both. Well, I just I'm just the I'm just one of the toes. What does that matter? Well, have you ever tried to walk without your toes? No, because you got them all. Go talk to someone who doesn't have them all. It's not a lot of fun. It's hard to walk without toes. Well, I'm just the appendix. Well, we've talked about that. Don't know what you do. Okay. But you are part of the body for whatever purpose it is. Maybe it is just the purpose to swell up and try to kill us one day. But anyway, all that being aside, you're still essential. We still like you. You're still part of us. You're part of the body. Say, yeah, but I don't have as grand of a job as the heart. 
Well, granted, yes, I don't compare the heart to the toe. But guess what? You're all equal in that you are essential. You have your specific giftings and your specific functions. Guess what? If the heart tried to jump out of the body and serve the purpose of the toes, guess what wouldn't work? That, okay? Let me just go ahead and tell you, heart needs to be inside the body, all right? And we don't need to be jumping out. We're going to have a weird little horror movie kind of scene there. Anything that we do in the kingdom of heaven, any giftings we have been given, they're given by God to us for his purposes. And he says, I gave them to you because I wanted you to do what I want you to do. I gave it to you because I know your story, your history, your past, your future, where you're going and where I'm placing you. And so I gave you this gift because I know what's best for you and the body. But you are not separate. If you try to separate yourself out, guess what? You are ineffective and purposeless. Guess what? When the big toe tries to strike off and say, you know what? I'm just going to do things my way. I'm going to cut myself off in the body and just go be my own big toe. Well, guess what? You die and are useless. Okay. I have yet to see any amputated appendages in the operating room. Jump up and go, you know what, guys? I'm better off without you. I will go. If it happened again, we're talking about a horror movie scene and we'd have to kind of rethink our our views of life. Um, But if any of those things ever happened. They don't work that way. There is an essentialness to being joined to the body. There is an essentialness to the equality of it all. We are all necessary for our own purposes and we all feed off each other and we all make the whole body work together. So here he starts off with the first parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like to a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day or a denarii a day, he set out or he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, go also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, Well, because no one has hired us. And he said unto them, Go you also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his stewards, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last to the first. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny or one denarii. That's one day's wage. That's what the custom was of that time. A denarius a day was kind of the daily wage. Okay. So then he, but when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more and likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house saying, these last have wrought but one hour And you have made them equal to us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he, the good man, answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Did not thou agree with me for a penny? Take what is thine and go the way. I will give unto the last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? If thy, is thy eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. For many be called, but few chosen. 
So the parable there that he's teaching, again, is piggybacking off of what he was teaching his disciples. So then you have to back up and go, okay, what is he trying to teach his disciples? Remember, the disciples he's talking to would be the first. They were the first of that group in context. They were the first to come to Christ. They were the first to follow after Christ. The first to give up all that they had to follow after him. I mean, these were the first, the primary They're the ones that Jesus gives kind of a greater honor to. Hey, guys, guess what? You are going to sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel in the end times. Whatever that may look like, however that plays out, we have awarded you a first place prize in this. Okay? He says, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, what we've been talking about throughout this book of Matthew, because guess what? That comes up a whole lot. All right. We've looked at different parables and Brother Charles has talked about this too, about what the kingdom of heaven is. When we look at the different parables that we've already seen in Matthew 13 and other places, he'll give us these pictures. The kingdom of heaven is like to this world growing up with wheat and tares in it. And you get all these kind of ideas. Okay, you know, okay, that gives me an idea about what this is going to look like. We're going to be right planted beside other people who are not of us. And how is how's that going to play out? And then it's going to be like a bush that grows out and all these other birds are going to join with it. And you sit back and you go, okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean, so that's an inclusive, we've got all these different birds and they're all nesting in the same place. We're bringing people from every tribe, kindred, nation, tongue on the face of the earth. And they're all taking rest in this one tree that start, that started off really, really small and then grew to this large thing that was able to inhabit all these people. We started off with just 12 people giving up their goods and their livelihood and following after me. And we grew to a movement of over a few billion from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue on the face of the earth. Oh, that's neat. So how does that all play in with all this? Now he's adding another layer to it. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who owns a vineyard, and in four different occasions he goes out and he calls people in. He says, I want you to come work for me. And they say, sure. How much are you going to pay me? I'm going to pay you a normal day's wage, one denarius for the whole day's work. And the first group that were there early in the morning said, all right, sounds good to me. That's what everybody else is getting. That's the minimum wage. I'm okay with that. No qualms, no beefs. I will work with you a 12-hour day for one denarius. Okay? And he goes out a little bit later, finds some other people. Hey, you want to come work for me? And this guy was a really generous person. I think there is a generosity in this that cannot be missed. He's described as a good man, the good man. Okay? The good man who was willing and multiple times in the day to continue to go out and grab laborers and say, I will pay you if you'll just come work for me. I mean, seriously, let's get to it. We're at the 11th hour of a 12-hour work day. How much work really is there left to do? How much gathering in is there left to do? How many more things do we have to accomplish in the day? How many of you about an hour for the time you're getting off your shift shut down? You know, an hour towards the end of the day, we're into that we're closing things up. You know, I know how we are at work. You know, you start getting close to that time where we're going to be rolling the phones and turning things off. I mean, things start shutting down. People are turning off lights. People are, you know, silly, you know, throwing thermostats up and then we freeze the next morning. But anyway, they're adjusting thermostats. They're turning off lights. We're flipping off computers. We're boxing up stuff. You know, everything starts shutting down around 30 minutes to an hour before the end of the day. Okay. Why? Because everybody, when that time hits, everybody wants to go home. Nobody wants to hang out after that. 
So, I mean, the 11th hour people coming in, you really have them coming into a scene where there's already been all of these other groups of people who have been going at it all day. They've got things pretty well set up, got the routine going, got everything kind of fixed. You got that group that comes in at the very end going, okay, so what do I need to do? Well, there's not a lot left for you to do. Okay, well, what do you want me to do? Well, you know, come over here, do whatever it may be. We're starting to pack things up. The day's about to close out. Every occasion, though, the good man had said, if you will just come in, I will pay you to work for me. Over and over, he goes back out. If you'll just come in, I will pay you to work for me. I will give you sustenance. I will provide for you. I will take care of you. These people were idle, unhired would be kind of the idea. They were um, unemployed at this moment. And he gave them employment. There's a generosity in this that is not to be missed. The good man was good enough to consistently go out. He's not just satisfied with what he has in the morning. Probably the morning laborers were able to get everything done. But he consistently went out to help another group of people four different times. And even the ones at the very end that you'd go, look, you really cannot provide me with a lot. You're only going to be working for me for an hour. You're not really going to achieve a whole lot in an hour. He still said, hey, you know what? There's an hour left. We got an hour left to work. Why don't you just come on in? You can work that last hour. I will still pay you. That generosity cannot be missed. That generosity, every time we look at the landowner, the vineyard owner, all of these people, the masters of the house, those are all referring back to God himself, okay? And nearly every parable where that is listed out, it's always referring back to God himself. So when you look at this man, this vineyard owner, who's willing to do this over and over again, we're getting a subtext, a glimpse into the generous nature of our God. So here's where he's showing this to us. We don't just glaze that over. We actually need to take that aspect of the story and go, Look at how generous our God is. Look at how compassionate and merciful he was to bring people in in this way. Look at how he continued to provide for these people. Look how there's always people to bring in. Isn't that interesting too? I think it kind of would be a sad testimony if in the very beginning it was just like, okay, I got my five. Everybody else is out of luck. Roster's full. No more room. Instead, you get this perpetualness to it. He goes back out and finds another group from another place with a different story, with a different past, with a different history, with a different reason why they're still unhired at the ninth and the eleventh hour and why they didn't. I mean, we may be reading a lot into this, but I can get a lot out of this. And that's why it's important for us to take it and dissect it in context with everything else. But he goes back for different occasions, hires these people. And remember, this is dovetailing off of what he was teaching to his disciples. He's looking at his disciples going, I know I just gave you something that's probably going to blow your head up so big you can't get through the door. Okay? You've already had an occasion with that. When I gave you all these powers, you came back and man, your heads were as big as anything going, look at the devils that we can cast out by our power. You know, look at all this power that we have. And Jesus says, yeah, I gave you something else that's going to probably make you think a lot about yourself too. But I want you to remember 
this. Closing section of chapter 19, he says, But remember this, but remember this, many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now let me tell you a parable. That's how this dovetails together. Remember that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Now let me tell you a parable. And oh, by the way, when I close out this parable, I'm going to tell you again. The last are going to be first and the first are going to be last. And there's going to be a lot called, but there's only few chosen. So he gives us this picture that he's trying to teach his disciples saying, you need to remember something about who and what I value. You need to remember something about who and what I value. It's not the hierarchy that you're thinking about. It's not this status position that your culture has bred into you. Because you're still having a hard time, Peter and others. You're still having a hard time dealing with the idea that I just told you that riches do not equal salvation. You're still struggling with this going, yeah, but I thought that if he's a rich man, he must be blessed of God. And if he has riches, he has means. And if he has means, he can accomplish all these things for the kingdom of heaven. Should that man not get preference? And Jesus is going, no, because you know what? The first is going to be last. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be impossible for him to enter the kingdom of heaven, especially if he's banking on his riches to do it. So he says, I'm going to show you how this works. The father, or should I say, the good man, the householder, is going to go out and he's going to find his laborers and he's going to bring them in and he's going to reward them based on his choosing his time, his means. He's going to give them the reward. They're not going to get it, okay, based off of their own hard work because, as we said, the last laborers only worked one hour. There's no way that they could have worked up enough whatever to merit their pay like the first ones did. They're going to receive it when technically they shouldn't have. They should have received whatever, one-eleventh, I guess, or one-twelfth. Okay, don't get into fractions with me, okay? <laughs> one-twelfth of the pay, you know, if we're going to divide this up, then let's break it up by an hour. We're going to take one denarius. We're going to break it up and divide it by 12 and you'll get a 12th of it because you only worked one hour out of 12. That's really what you deserve based on your merit and on your labors. So keep all that in mind as we kind of go through this. That teaching, though, of the last shall be first, that's used in other places. It is used over when you look at the um, at, in Luke chapter 13 when he's talking about the uh, the master of the house who's going to go out and he's going to, um, well, if I can get my words out here, the master of the house who's going to have a marriage feast for his son. He gives that example, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In Luke chapter 13, he talks about those who are going to come and knock at the door and they're going to say, oh, but didn't we do kind of what we talked about last time? Didn't we do all these things in your name? Aren't we one of yours? Haven't we been faithful to you? And Jesus is going to ha through the door go, I never knew you depart, clam, shut the door in their face and then say, and there shall be many that come from the east and the west and will sit down in the kingdom, but the children of the kingdom will be cast out. That's a Matthew text. Okay, Luke here says that many shall come and sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are the last which shall be first. And there are the first that shall be last. In Mark, he uses the idea 
of all these people giving up all their goods and their lands like he talks about in Matthew chapter 19. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. And of course, Matthew chapter 19 uses that phrase. Many shall, that are last shall be first. When you look over and few or, or for many have been called, but few are chosen, you find that in 19. But then you find that in Matthew chapter 22 that we will get to in a couple of who knows, years. In Matthew chapter 22, he gives the idea of the certain king who made a marriage feast for his son. And after all of that shakes out, he gets to the end and says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Over and over again, he's giving us teachings about something. Okay, He's giving us teachings about something in numerous cases. Now, we have talked about how the synopsis of the Gospels or the synoptic Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, typically repeat the same stories. So there's a lot of times in 18 and 19 we would go, and this is repeated in Mark, and this is repeated in Luke. And if it's repeated in all three accounts, it must have a lot of importance to it, okay? But in these cases, some of these stories are kind of different, all right? Matthew doesn't talk about necessarily the master who sends out for the marriage feast. And Mark doesn't talk about necessarily the one who is going to uh, be knocking at the door and the door is going to get shut in his face. There's going to be a lot of these different stories that come up. But interestingly enough, they all go back to the same teaching. They all go back to this idea of the last being first and the first being last. Now, there is, there is a sub-context to all of this. In some of those cases, like with the marriage feast that we'll get into in Matthew chapter 22... He is speaking to a Jewish and Gentile divergence that's there, okay? He's speaking to these people who had been historical, traditional, familial Jews who had thought, like the Pharisees did in Matthew chapter 19, I keep the law, all right? I am a law keeper, and because I keep the law, I am deserving of eternal life because I did what you told me to do, okay? I kept the law, quote unquote. I deserve this. I've done it more than anybody else. I'm a Pharisee, guys. I am legit on every level, okay? I'm more legit, if that's even a way of saying that. I'm more legit than you are, okay? Because I'm a Pharisee. You let yourself be watered down. I am a Pharisee. We were founded because we wanted to get back to being OG Jews. That's how we wanted to be. You know, you came in, that's, if you remember with the Pharisees, that's why they came around. You had a Hellenization of the Jews. You had this Greek influence in the Jews. We're kind of going, hey, we kind of like this Greek philosophy stuff. And we're going to mix it in with it, you know, same story, same time, just different channel kind of a deal. And they want to mix it in. And the Pharisees are like, no, 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 we got to get back to what the law says. Now, they kind of embellished. They kind of added to it. They kind of created their own system so that they could have more power. I mean, we won't get into that, but they were the ones who said, no, we keep the law better than anybody else. So of all the people in Judea, we deserve the inheritance that was promised to us. And Jesus is talking to them going, guys, there's going to be a lot of people come and sit down at this proverbial table with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and all these kind of eternal glory things of a kingdom that the Jews had been thinking about usually from their very beginning. And he's going, and guess what? None of y'all are going to be there. None of y'all are going to get there. None of y'all are going to be deserving of it. You want to know why? Because the things that you missed was the, the lineage that you're holding on to. All of these things that you think are what God indebts to you and why God owes you these things. I'm telling you there's a story here 
that you are completely oblivious to. Your self-righteousness by legalistic means has in no way bought yourself eternal life. He talks about this descendants of Abraham and he says, you think that you're a descendant of Abraham because you kept the law. I'm telling you, or you were born into it or but you were even circumcised. You go through all of these things that you say, this is why God owes me that. And I'm telling you, it is the faith of Abraham that makes you a descendant of Abraham. It is the faith that Abraham embodied that carries all the way through you as a born again child of God. That is why you are going to be sitting down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob while others are cast out. Others who thought that was going to be their story that he looks at and says, no, it's not. He also speaks in other places like in Romans where he'll say you missed the righteousness of the law because you did not seek it by faith. Didn't seek it by faith because they did not have the faith to seek it by. So when we talk about all these things with the subtext, there are parts of this where Jesus is looking at a group of Jews, Pharisees who are looking at him going, I don't know who you are. I know Moses. I don't know you. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to believe you. In fact, I'm going to try to tempt you, try you. And ultimately, I'm going to kill you, which is what Jesus says three times here. And Jesus will say, yeah, I'm going to tell you something. There's going to be a reality that you're going to come to that's going to be very different from what you think you deserve. Again, going back to what we think we deserve, the equality that we all share. The equality we all share is that we are all deserving of hell. We are all deserving of that. But some of these Pharisees and the self-righteous works-based, you know, people like the rich young ruler are going to be are coming from it with that different point of view. No, it's by what I did. No, it's by how I kept the law. No, it's by who I was descended from. No, it's because I'm just so awesome and I deserve this. Or it's because of how much good I have already done. And Jesus is going, no, there is an equality in this. And it's not what you think. Well, in the same way, he's trying to bring his disciples around to that. Guys, you're kind of thinking like that rich young ruler. Guys, you're kind of thinking like that Pharisee. And in particular with the rich young ruler, you're kind of thinking because you've given all this stuff up that somehow you deserve this. That somehow I've got to look at you and go, oh yeah, well because you did all that, hey guys, great job. Let me tell you about all the grand and wondrous things that God's going to give to you because you're just so, in, he's just so indebted to you because of how awesome you are. Remember what Jesus was telling them in chapter 19. These things are impossible with man alone. With man alone, these things are impossible. Only God, who is the God of the all possible, could bring you, Peter, or any of the other disciples to a point where y'all would willingly lay down anything and come follow me. Only God, who is the God of all possible would be able to take your hard impertinent heart and soften it to a point that you would even look at Jesus and desire him and want to follow him only God can do that so if he's sitting here talking and you're going to talk about all these things you've given up and all these things you're bragging about you just need to remember there's only one source of goodness and there's only one place you could have come from and there's only one person who could have ever moved in you in a capacity with a power enough to bring you where you are and that is God. So when we come back to who all the credit, glory, and honor goes to, it goes to God, not your abilities, 
not your sacrifices. boy, you gave it up. Great. Guess what we're about to see Jesus give up? I think that's another reason why these little, these little re, <laughs> re-educations on his death keep coming up in these places. He keeps angling them back at the disciples going, you think you have given up anything? You gave up a fishing career, which, by the way, 30 minutes after I'm di- I've died, you drop your clothes and go run back to it. You didn't give it up. It was still sitting over there as a viable alternative, as a plan B. Oh, well, Jesus is dead. Well, I guess I'll go back to fishing. You know, I mean, that wasn't, you didn't sacrifice anything. Apparently, it's still sitting there. The boat's still waiting for you. The nets are still mended. Three and a half years vacation, sabbatical, whatever you want to call it, and you go right back at it. You didn't give that up. You didn't sacrifice anything. Matthew could have walked right back into the Roman legions and gone, hey, you know what? I liked my tax-paying job. I took a break, needed a vacation, but now I'm right back at it. None of them really sacrificed in that way. They didn't give it up. They just put it on a back burner. They'll set my career aside for a few years so I can do this whole religious thing and feel better about myself. And then, if it all comes to naught, I'll go right back to it. Unfortunately, that's how we fit into the story a lot of times. That's how we fit into the big picture a lot of times. Well, this is a good thing for when I'm in high school or when I'm in college or when I'm in my early adult years or when I'm in my later adult years, whatever it may be. You know, I can do this religious thing for a little while, but you know what? If it all just doesn't pan out the way that I think it should, I'll just go right back to what I'm used to. Go right back to what I want to do. Put my career and stuff on the side burner for a little while to get extra credit. And then when it doesn't work out, I'll just come right back to it. We can fall into the lines with a with these original workers who have been arguing here with the good man of the house. Hey, we have worked the hardest. We've been here the longest. We gave up our entire day. We worked in the hot of the sun and we bore the burden the whole day. And look, these people just walked in an hour ago. They hit the break room. They hadn't done anything. You're giving them the same pay. That's not fair. That's not fair. We deserve more than them. We deserve a pay that is equitable to our labor. And if you're saying the new standard is a denarius per hour, then we need 12 denarius here, okay? We need more money. Because here you have given these people the same as you have given us. Technically, if they get a denarius for one hour's work, then we need... I'm not going to say, well, I was not, not, don't know how to quadruple that. We're not going to, we're, we deserve then 11 times more than that. That may not even be the right math, but we're not going to quote me on that. We deserve more because we have done more. That's basically what he's saying. We deserve more because we have done more. That's what they have couched coming off of the teaching with the rich young ruler. What are we going to get, Jesus? We deserve more because we've actually done what you told him to do. You told him to sell all he has and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Well, guess what we did? We sold all that we had, kind of. We gave it to the poor, sort of, and we've come and follow you. So what are we going to get? 
Where's going to be our reward? We have done more, therefore we deserve more. And we tend to fall into that. Now again, like we were talking about with the rich young ruler, we were talking about the works-based self-righteousness. And we were talking about the legalistic self-righteousness too. In both of those stories, we were talking about how we fall victim to that. And a lot of times we go, there's no way. I do not believe that works get you to heaven. I don't believe that. I'm a salvation by grace and choice and all these things. And that's what I believe. And that's what I've grown up in. You can't convince me that I believe that. But then we reveal the fact that we think in our minds, even though we may not say it, we think in our minds all the time. Well, but look at what I've done. I'm at church every Sunday when others are not. I'm at church every Wednesday night when others are not. I have always been good. I've never watched an R-rated movie. I've never said a cuss word. I've never done one bad thing. I was baptized when I came out of the womb. I professed these things when I was three years old. I have been in the church my whole life. Why am I having problems then? Why do I have troubles? Why is life not going the way it's supposed to? Why did I lose my job? Why did I end up with cancer? Why, why, why? Because I've done more than everybody else and I deserve more. I deserve these things. Look at this person who comes in here. They did, I mean, look at that. Look at what they did with their life. They've been hooked on drugs all their life. They have beaten their family all their life. They have done all these things. They just came on board. Why is their life going better than my life? What am I getting out of this church thing? Where's my benefits? What am I going to get? Lord, I gave up all these things for you. Why am I having problems? Why am I not satisfied? Why am I unhappy? I have done all these things for you. Why am I not getting what I deserve? We fall into that exact same trap. Or in the other side of it, again, from the legalistic side, we may talk about the good works, things that we've done. Look at all these good things. I've given to the poor. I've given to the church. I've given, I've given, 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 given. I deserve things from that. On the other side of it, we can say, I have never done anything wrong when it comes to doctrine or election or anything. I have always kept the right thought, the right philosophy, the right church, the right Bible, the right everything. And go away. I deserve, I think things should be better because look at how legalistically I have kept everything. I've done it right. I've always been in the right place. I've always been a part of the right church. I've always been a part of the right Bible, the right everything. I've always been right in all of this. So why are things not working out the way that I think they should? Where's the value in doing right? If doing it the right way doesn't give you any benefits, then where's the value in it? On both sides of that coin, we fall victim to that self-righteousness issue. I have done all of this and I think I deserve more. I have worked in the vineyard in the heat of the day for 12 stinking hours. I deserve more than what this person who has just wandered in here at the very end deserves. I mean, that's just logic, people. That's just logic. That's how we would look at it at our jobs. How many of you would be just furious if you went through like 12 years of school... You went through all of this hard time. You went through all of these degrees. You indebted yourself to school and everything else for all these years. And you came out and you have busted your tail for years doing a job. You've had the exact same pay the whole time. And someone comes in who's never been to school, never did anything, comes in here and gets more pay than you do. How many of you would go, that is not fair? 
I have more degrees than they had. I put more time in. That's not fair that they get more than I do. They shouldn't be able to come in here and get more than I do. I've been here. I've been the faithful presence. I've been the one who's worked hard. I've never complained. I've never taken it. You know, I've I've always been good. Sounds a lot like the prodigal son's brother. I've always been here. Never asked you for more than I did. Never did anything. I've always done all these things. I deserve more. And what Christ is trying to teach his disciples is you all equally deserve nothing. You all equally, equally, equally deserve nothing. I don't care what you've done. You don't deserve anything. You don't deserve the least bit. The woman who comes to Jesus' table and asks, or well, it comes to Jesus and asks for a blessing when he gives her the kind of, we talked about this a few chapters ago, gives her the kind of, not the real shove off, but kind of does a Jewish shove off to try to teach his disciples something about it. Okay, When she comes up and says, Lord, I just need you to heal my family. I need you to bless me in this way. And he says, you know, it's not worthy. It's not fit for us to give the blessings to dogs. And he says, yeah, but even dogs will eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And he says, right there's the mentality that all of you need to have. You are not deserving to sit at my table. There's nothing in you, nothing you've done, nothing you could possibly ever do that deserves you a seat at the table. The only things that you could even hope for are that if something falls off the table, you might get a piece. That's where we equally stand. We have no standing. We equally across the board have no standing. We are the one who deserves nothing, yet has received infinitely more than we deserve. We don't deserve to sit at the master's table, but the master says, it delights me to pull up a chair for you. We don't deserve any of his blessings that he says, but you know what? I was willing to sacrifice everything of mine just so you could enjoy these blessings. That yes, I have chosen across the board and at different times in different places of different populations of different colors and creeds and backgrounds and peoples of all nations, kindreds, tongues and tribes. I have chosen them and drawn them in at my choosing, my time, my discernment, because guess what? I'm God and you're not. I've chosen to do this according to my will and my good pleasure. And I've given to each of you equally the same thing. Every single one of us, whether we came in early, late, top, bottom, poor, rich, whatever we may look like, be like, act like, wherever we came from, doesn't matter. We have all been blessed by Christ to have a kingdom that we sit in and equality. And that equality that we share is the blessing that 
and again, going going back to what we had talked about way back when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, talking about the things that, that the pictures that he gives us in the parables, talking about, again, going back to like the mustard seed with all of the fowl of the air coming and living in it, the picture that he wanted them to grab and that he's going to go forward and continue to educate them on. And Paul and others are going to take up the mantle in Ephesians and in Galatians and other places. He's going to say, look, you need to grasp this. That I have destroyed all things that would divide you. I have destroyed all hierarchies. There is no more Jew and Gentile. There is no more slave and free. There is no more Scythian or Greek. We have destroyed all of these things that we as people of this world use to separate and divide us. And instead he says, you know what? I have made all of you one at the same time table in the same kingdom enjoying the same feast with the same god and same savior jesus christ and he says now if you want a message peter if you want a teaching paul and all the others if you want something that you need to go out and you need to tell other people you want to give someone the hope that they that they need in these cases It's not, well, come in here and one day you might be like me. Come join join in the kingdom. Come participate. And one of these days, you're going to be just as good as I am. I'm not talking from Jesus' point of view. I'm talking about from our point of view. That we would look at people and say, once you get in here, we'll get you good and cleaned up. We'll get you in the right place, the right clothes, the right attitude, the right everything. We're going to get all that stuff fixed for you so you can eventually get... To this level of awesomeness that I am at. Instead, we get to look at people around the world and go, no matter where you came from, no matter what your background is, no matter what you've done, what you think you were going to do, no matter where you come from, no, no, no matter what means you have or means you don't have, we all get to equally enjoy in the blessings and the fruits of Christ's labor we get to come into a kingdom where we sing songs and praises to him for what he has done so we don't sing about what we have done we sing about what he has done we get to go on and on about what christ did and how much christ gave up and how much christ sacrificed and how much christ accomplished and how much christ did all of these things for us that's what we get to glory in And what's glorious about that is is that that means that nobody nobody has any other legs to stand on. Nobody gets to come in here and say, oh, but look at what I have done. Because all we get throughout the entirety of Scripture is everything that you have done doesn't mean squat. The only thing that matters is what Christ has done. May God bless us to work on that.